Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, uh, before I get started, I want to remind you that there is a website associated with this podcast called wealthformula.com. That's where you go if you want to get access to many of the resources not available directly from the podcast, various downloads, books, that kind of thing. It's also where you can go to sign up for some of our lists and groups, uh, such as the Investor Club. If you're an accredited investor, you're interested in uh, being involved with private deal flow, consider joining the Accredited Investor Club. Go to wealthformula.com and uh, click on Investor Club. Hopefully we will we can get you involved in some things that way as well. Now, as for today's show, I want to talk a little bit about China. But before that, I want to kind of give you some thoughts on just in terms of bias and perspective, because it's been, it's, it's what made me think of this was this interview with James Fox. You see, no matter how open-minded you are, uh, what I found is you're ultimately going to approach things with a certain bias, okay? And it's very difficult not to. It's sort of what, if you don't, it's almost like, you know, just not having gravity. You know, you have to be weighted down somewhere to start. Otherwise, you'd go crazy, right? So so having biases is normal. And it only takes being completely wrong about something, you know, once or twice that you would potentially even bet your life on to really realize that. And that is really when you just you just feel like, oh man, I was so wrong. And what else could I potentially be wrong about? A good example of that in my case was, you know, admittedly with COVID-19 in the early days, I actually didn't think it was going to be a big deal. I looked at some of the old data, uh, the early data when it was coming out and the percentages that I was seeing. And I was like, yeah, no, this is not a big deal. People are making too big of a deal of this. And of course, I was totally wrong. I mean, at least in the case of what I call the old guard COVID, which is the first one, and then Delta, these were pretty, uh, these were pretty lethal, you know, dangerous viruses. A lot of people died uh, and others like me who didn't die. And I had the old guard COVID, as, as you may recall, I got very sick and it took a long time to fully recover. But anyway, the, there's two reasons why. I say that I, I probably didn't take this seriously. And one was the data that I said, okay? The data was not super impressive. But in retrospect, the more powerful force in my determination of whether or not this was a serious threat was the fact that I was negating the seriousness of COVID because my bias that something like that could not possibly happen 
in the United States of America. Now, listen, I certainly was aware of SARS and Ebola overseas, but then in the U.S., you know, you get these little outbreaks of bird flu, things like that. They would fizzle out really quickly. And so I just in my mind could not process that, that that's something that could have happened in the U.S. Anyway, obviously I was. And when you're wrong on such a serious thing, it makes, again, you realize that your own biases and perspectives are, are probably influenced a lot of things that you might be wrong about. Of course, as an investor, and that's you know where we are in, uh, with this show about investing in personal finance, this concept is really, really important. And it's really ultimately you know, uh, trying to recognize blind spots, right? It's extremely important. For example, remember that digital assets, cryptocurrencies, these are highly speculative investments that involve a lot of asymmetric risk. And aside from perhaps Bitcoin, and some would even argue that, uh, but the risk profile for the majority of these cryptocurrencies, if not all of them outside of maybe Bitcoin, is extraordinarily high. And the chance of them going to zero is still any one of them going to zero is a real possibility. But you can't, it's sometimes hard to really accept that when people around you are echoing, you know, similar positive sentiments towards a project that you might actually really believe in, believe in the team you know, see tremendous upside and get really excited about it. And a great example of that, specifically in cryptocurrency, just happened, you know, a couple of weeks ago in the case of this uh, Luna, or Terra, uh, Terra Luna, it seemed like a great project, no doubt, considerable upside, but still had an asymmetric risk profile. But I think a lot of people got super excited and kind of fed into it on top of each other. And next thing you know, the the real risk of this thing seemed less and less like, you know, it was something that, you know, the idea of it going to zero was probably didn't even occur that it was a possibility to a lot of people who were involved with it. Of course it did, but it's a long story. I won't bore you with it. You can look it up, uh, the Luna cryptocurrency, but it did go to zero effectively. And that's the end of that. And so I know there's some people who lost a ton of money and I'm sure there are, it always stings, but hopefully there's an understanding that if you lost money, you did it knowing that that was a real possibility because we have to remember those types of things, right? At the end of the day, biases like this and perspective, they're all around us. They're everywhere. And the reason I mentioned them you know, in, in, in a prelude to this particular podcast is because my discussion with today's guest, James Falk, James is an expert in China uh, and in relations with the United States and financial markets. His view on China's motives, you know, whether it comes digital currency, like we just were talking about, or, or the war in Ukraine and, you know, why China isn't doing more are quite different from what I had expected. And they were kind of eye opening. And reflecting on this interview, I realized it was just another example of how perspective can really influence the way you view the world. And that shouldn't be surprising. I mean, James is an English intellectual, lived in Hong Kong, right? I am an American who sees China as an adversary akin to the former Soviet Union, right? I see them as sort of a dark 
force in the world and I'm not a you know huge fan of the Chinese government. So this is obviously we're going to have some differences in perspective, but it's it's important to be able to listen to others and, and get their perspective because the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Anyway, that's the interview you're going to hear with me and James Fock right after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest and Wealth Formula podcast is James Falk. Uh, James is a veteran financial strategic advisor to corporations and governments. He's served as a senior executive at Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing HKEX uh, during a decade of rapid internationalization in China's capital markets. And he's the author of Financial Cold War, which is a book which we'll be discussing a little bit here today. James, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you very much, Buck, for having me. Yeah, so um, let's start out with this notion uh or you know i mean i guess it's it's uh, for anybody who's following what's going on between us and china the last several years um we can understand why you would call it a financial cold war but you want to talk about you know why you call it a cold war just to start well first of all when you use this phrase financial cold war a lot of people's thinking immediately jumps to sanctions trade wars and so forth that's not what i'm talking about by the time you get to that point, I would say that you're already in a financial hot war. The, the financial cold war, as I define it in my book, is the accumulated effects of lots of individual national policies and imbalances caused by the structure of the global financial system, which have contributed to tensions and conflicts between China and America. Got it. Got it. So the U.S., how is the U.S. dollar really at the centerpiece of this financial cold war uh, between China and the U.S.? There, there are a number of elements to the financial cold war. So the, the dollar's role in the global monetary system and the imbalances caused by that are one. Other issues include 
international tax competition. It includes industrial policies, which ultimately has to do with a lot of failures to enforce antitrust policies, which, which have allowed the flourishing of monopolistic and oligopolistic practices in in both countries. And then it has also got to do with incentives, both in the public sphere and in private businesses. As regards the the dollar, the the US dollar was lodged at the centre of the global monetary system by the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944. At the time, the U.S. accounted for around about half of global GDP. The the dollar has been extremely useful in the globalization of trade and investment in the many decades since. But the the system that Bretton Woods created ultimately created a, a fundamental imbalance at the heart of the global financial system, that being that in order to supply the rest of the world with sufficient liquidity to handle the growth in international trade and investment, the US had to keep supplying dollars to the rest of the world. In other words, it had to keep running a balance of payments deficit. And that's all well and good while the the US economy continues to grow at at least as fast as the rest of the world. But for a long time now, the the US has been a large, mature economy and other countries have been growing a lot faster. And so in order to allow the dollar to continue to serve in that role, the United States has had to go into higher and higher levels of debt. This has created a fundamental fragility at the center of the US financial system. And because of the US financial system's centrality to the financial system of the whole world, it's created a a fundamental fragility in global financial markets and made us, frankly, just far more prone to the the types of financial crises that seem to be happening more and more often in the the previous decades. The the other impact of the dollar really is one on the US, the US dollar is quite often talked about as a source of exorbitant privilege in favor of the United States at the expense of other countries. Well, the the reality of that really depends on where you sit in US society. So if over the last 40 years, you've been the wealthy shareholder of a large US corporation, who because of the demand for dollars in international finance and international trade and the the consequent structural overvaluation of the dollar, if you've been able to take advantage of that by outsourcing your production to lower cost centers with undervalued currencies, then you've done very well because what's happened is you've been able to bring your costs down, your profit margins have gone up and share prices have gone through the roof. If, on the other hand, over the last 40 years, you've been a US manufacturing worker, the story hasn't been so rosy for you. Your your experience has been one of displacement, job loss, at best, long-term wage stagnation. And one of the main arguments in my book is that the benefits of 
the dollar-centric global monetary system today outweigh the benefit, uh, the costs of the, the US dollar-centric monetary system today outweigh the benefits, even for most people living in the United States themselves. This has been a, a you know, a, a complicated issue for the Chinese to consider, right? The um, dollar-centric global economy um, versus, you know, the, their own investments into the U.S. How, how does that all play out from the Chinese perspective? Well, the, the fact is, I mean, China has come from abject poverty and it is through opening up its economy to the rest of the world and embracing market practices. It's, it's seen enormous economic growth, but the, the way that China has grown in its early stages were really reliant on a very large labor force. So it happened that a generation of baby boomers was coming into the workforce just right at the time when Deng Xiaoping embarked on this process of reform and opening up in 1978. You also happened to have at that time a number of people who had been politically marginalized under the Cultural Revolution returning to the cities and to the workforce. And you had the one-child policy, which drastically reduced the number of dependents per head of population. So the Chinese government was able to harness the, the savings that were generated by this growing workforce through its control of the state-owned banking sector to direct investment into government infrastructure and other development properties. And it was a model that has been extremely successful. That's what laid the groundwork for the, the export boom in China that began in, in the 1990s. The, the problem with that system today is that China now is facing a, a rapidly aging population, and it, it can't continue pouring concrete as a means of driving GDP growth, because ultimately that's going to end up in massive uh, investment and, and capital misallocation that is going to have severe costs and consequences for China. So, you know, a consequence of the top-down investment-led economic model that China has pursued is that it has underdeveloped its domestic capital markets. That means that it is heavily reliant on the US dollar in its financial and trade interactions with the rest of the world. And as we've seen more recently, that the United States has shown an increasing tendency to weaponize that dollar system against its strategic rivals. And you know, as we as tensions have escalated between China and the US, this has become a significant source of vulnerability for China. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. So it is a complicated uh, relationship ultimately. Um, let's talk a little bit. Let's go back to this uh, idea of the financial Cold War in specifics to, you know, where we are in technology. Artificial intelligence, 
how does how does this technology, in your view, how will it um, influence the balance of power uh, in the coming days? Coming days, I really don't know, but in the coming in the coming years and and uh, coming decades, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be. I think one of a number of uh, highly game-changing technologies. If you look at if you look at the power balance between great powers, you know that there's a there's an economic and, and financial dimension to that. That there's also, in very large part, a, a technological dimension of that. What one of the reasons why China ended up in, in the 19th century being essentially very poor and marginalized and frankly subject to a bit of bullying in the in the international sphere was the fact that in the early 1400s they had taken a decision essentially to to scrap the pursuit of maritime technology and so the europeans raced ahead and you know, used their lead in maritime technology to to colonize large part of the world that fueled that provided the, the capital that fueled the renaissance and the the sort of technology technological advances that you saw in europe through the industrial revolution so technology is always in great power relations a major factor and whether it's artificial intelligence machine learning or other forms of technology if one or other gains a, a substantial lead over the other then it, it could well shift the, the balance of power now that that could be an entirely benign thing you know uh, frankly you know actually it, it's great to have some competition because that drives hu human innovation and, and development and, and hopefully uh, a, a better standard of living for all of humanity but you know if a technology gives uh, one country the power to oppress another country or to somehow subjugate them then obviously that for the, the target of that oppression and subjugation it is not going to be such a good thing um what is right now i know you're not uh, you're in uh actually in the u.s right now um but right now with uh, the COVID uh, the lockdowns, coming out of COVID, uh, the supply chain issues, what's going on in the economy in China right now? Obviously, we have our own issues here that we've been focused on with inflation and markets are getting demolished and all that kind of thing. But what, what's going on in China? Okay, it, it's been pretty tough. Uh, when I left Hong Kong on the... 18th of April for this trip. We, we'd been in three months of lockdown. Uh, the kids were out of school, people working from home. And you know, the, the, the atmosphere was pretty grim. And sadly, we, we've seen now uh, with the spread of the Omicron variant around other parts of China, you, you've seen 
other cities like Shanghai, Xi'an going to into lockdown, and that obviously is causing a lot of pressure and and causing a lot of uh, social and and economic harm. As regards the the economic impact of that, I mean, the the shutting down of of factories and production and so forth will inevitably have a a dramatic consequence on China's economic growth. We we now live in a rather globalised world, connected not just through trade, but through the, the intricate intertwining of the international capital markets. And so the what's going on in China will, will inevitably have knock-on consequences and impacts for other parts of the world, including here in the United States. I, I always find it sort of rather, I always find it rather odd that, you know, quite often you, you see in some of the public commentary uh, a bit of, you know, schadenfreude being expressed at the travails that China's going through, and likewise, that happened in China in, in 2020 when the, the United States was going through a rough time. The, the reality is that given the extent to which the two countries are interlinked and intertwined, that the clear self-interest for both countries is in the social and economic well-being of the other. So as regards as regards China right now, they're, they're in a tough spot. I mean, the, the fact is that you know it, we, we saw this in, in Hong Kong, unfortunately, a little bit over a month ago, we had some of the highest death rates in, in the world. And at that time, Hong Kong, you put out a, a survey or a study on vaccine efficacy. Hong Kong was the only place that I'm aware of in the world where you had the option between the, the Sinovac vaccine and the mRNA vaccine. And what, what the study showed was that obviously people who hadn't been vaccinated had very high levels of hospitalization. But of those who had been fully vaccinated and had to be hospitalized, 87% of those had taken the Sinovac vaccine. Unfortunately, it seems that 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 vaccine is not as efficacious against the Omicron variant of the virus. And so if you look look at it in those terms, it becomes very difficult that the Chinese government's really between a rock and a hard place because they're they're acutely aware of the the economic damage of these lockdowns and frankly, the, the level of unhappiness and, and social dissatisfaction that these cause. But unfortunately, unlike here in the United States, where you have lots of doctors uh, like yourself, almost on every street corner, that the in China, there are two doctors for every thousand head of population, and that, that population is very dense. And so if they were to pursue the the type of opening up that you've seen here in the United States, uh, walk around the street, nobody's wearing masks anymore, then there is a very grave risk of quite catastrophic consequences. Uh, I think, you know, rather than 
you know, rather than delighting in in the travails that they face, I, I think all of us ought to be expressing an awful lot of sympathy at this point. I want to um, shift a little bit to the the uh, the war in um, in Ukraine. Uh, give me Chinese, the you know, your perspective on China's, I guess, lukewarm um, response. Um, you know. With their perspective, and they just have to do in part with their own potential um, interests in, uh, you know, taking over various you know, places like Hong Kong in the future. <laughs> or what is the what is their what is the reason um, for them not being? Um, is it a balance of power issue? What with regard to their position on the Ukraine, uh, Russia's. Um, uh, uh, in the in the Ukraine, but just so I'm, I'm clear on the the question. Your, I, I think there are two parts to your question. The the first being that what why is China not going along with Western financial sanctions on Russia in response to the Ukraine invasion? And then I, I think the second question is: Is there any read across from China's stance there to issues around Hong Kong, yeah. Taiwan. I mean, that's basically kind of what we thought is, uh, but uh, yes, exactly. Okay, so uh, I think when you when you look at this issue, not just from China's perspective, but if you take a step back, I mean, it, it's it's a complicated one. No, no one's condoning. Russian aggression in the Ukraine for, for one second is something which is absolutely abhorrent and should stop immediately. But if you look at the, the English language, Anglo-Saxon press right now, you, you get this certain view of the world, which is that, oh, aren't the Russians terrible? And, you know, why is everybody not joining in to, to these sanctions. I'll first say that if you look at this objectively, that the so-called international order imposing sanctions on Russia right now includes countries representing around 10 to 15% of the world's population. China has very specific reasons for not going along with these sanctions. One is that China is very dependent on Russia for energy and food. It's not self-sufficient in either of those commodities. And the, the fact is that China in its maritime environments is surrounded by you know, the, the US Navy. And so you know, in the event of any dispute with the US, there is a serious security threat to China that access to food and energy through the very narrow Malacca Strait shipping lane could be choked off. So the, the geopolitical tensions between China and the US have driven China to diversify those forms of supply. And now it's very dependent on imports of those commodities over the Russian border. But the second 
factor is that China shares a 2,600-mile land border with Russia. Russia is vital to the security and stability of a number of countries on China's western border. The fact is that China cannot afford for Russia to be destabilized. They don't want to get on the wrong side of the U.S. either. Frankly, you know, they're very dependent on the U.S. dollar and the U.S. dollar system. And so they're forced into walking quite a tightrope at the moment. But China's not alone in not following those sanctions. And the fact is that India has chosen not to do so. Uh, Brazil has chosen not to do so. Part of part of that has been a, a calculation of interest. Uh, it, this is a hard-nosed world, and that's a factor. Part of it, I think, also, which I think is, is more pertinent for an American audience, is that they look at the path to this tragic conflict and they see that there are two sides to this story. And so, you know, on the, the moral question of whether or not they, they should be following along with Western sanctions at this point, irrespective of their, their material and sovereign interests, uh, I think, you know, that they're very reasonable, balanced people. And I encourage people to go and read and, and listen to some of the views being expressed by you know, very reasonable, level-headed intellectuals in India, in China, and other parts of the world, and that then reflect on, I think, you know, what, what the, the situation really is. And, and, what is and, and what do you mean by that, what the situation really is? Um, I mean, I guess from the American perspective and for what we see is a you know, uh, you know, an attack on a sovereign country that was not really precipitated by anything that uh, Ukrainians uh, was not precipitated by the Ukrainians in any sort of way. It just seemed like a land grab. So what is the other perspective? The, the other perspective is that this was an entirely avoidable conflict. And when you say that you know, it wasn't precipitated, Russia had stated quite clearly that they saw NATO expansion right up to their borders, and particularly into Ukraine, as a major security threat. Now, you can debate the rights and wrongs of that, and you can debate whether that's true or not, but Russia, Russian leaders come from a long historical perspective of having been invaded a number of times by Napoleon, by Hitler, right through that sort of that that channel. And so I don't think that Russian security concerns were entirely illegitimate. I, I repeat again that I I absolutely abhor violence and, and the aggression which they, they've resorted to. But I, I also believe that there's there have been a lot of mistakes made by a, a number of different actors 
in, in the lead up to this conflict. And I think the focus now must be on trying to remove Russian troops from the Ukraine and, and see a cessation of hostilities. And, and in that, you know, I, I look at the news and, and look at the pronouncements by some Western leaders, and I, I have to say that I hold up my hands in despair because ultimately the, the Ukrainians are now paying the price for what, what has become a, a proxy conflict between different actors around the world. And you know, when, when Russia isn't given room to de-escalate and to, to exit, hopefully, gracefully, from their perspective, then the, the only result of that is a continuation of the, the violence and bloodshed. Do you see any, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the uh, uh, Chinese um, perspective on Hong Kong. Do you see any parallels on, um, you know, what's going on with, with Ukraine and, and the Russians and how China sees the situation with Hong Kong and, and how they may be reacting to it, um, influenced by that perspective? Uh, do, do you mean Hong Kong or, or Taiwan? Taiwan, sorry, Taiwan. Taiwan. Well, I, I'm I'm not sure that there's any direct read across. I, I'm certain that Chinese policymakers will be paying very close attention to the the financial sanctions that the West has placed on Russia in the wake of the, the Ukraine conflict. Um, unfortunately, with Taiwan, we've history has left us with the the, the current status quo. Uh, I think, you know, my my best advice would to anyone would be that we should probably follow the Deng Xiaoping's prescription on that and allow that situation to be handled by later and hopefully far wiser generations. And I, I think that generally that will happen unless that there is a, a, unless there is a particular catalyst that forces that the hands of you know, leaders either in China or in the United States. Um, I want to finish up because with uh, a question a little bit. I know you have an interest um, in digital currencies and Bitcoin and, and that sort of thing. As it relates to China, China seems to have had sort of a, a tricky relationship with the digital currencies having, you know, um, at various times banned mining, uh, Bitcoin, uh, attacks on Bitcoin, et cetera. But then there's also uh, a recent, I believe, uh, you, you could clarify this for me, but it was a, recently launched their own digital currency. Can you Can you explain sort of, you know, China's uh, perspective, perhaps, on, on digital currencies and what you see the role of it in the future, potentially? So you, you're right that China is a, China is a leader in uh, the drive towards creating a central bank digital currency. And uh, I think 
the, the reason why they're, they're pursuing that is that you know, they, in China, China has, frankly, some of the most advanced kind of payment technology, mobile payment technologies in in the world. You, you've even you know if you're you're on the street, you're paying a busker, you're you're doing it over your phone through the Alipay or, or WeChat Pay app. The 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 problem that, that China faces is that in many cases that the technological advances has run far ahead of the regulatory frameworks to support it and to, to govern that. And I see the, the central bank digital currency as part of a, an effort that to essentially create a, a level playing field for all financial services companies and, and fintech actors so that dominant monopoly or oligopoly platforms aren't able to abuse their position of dominance to stifle competition and to, to prevent you know, the, the emergence of newer and, and more innovative technologies. As regards the as regards the attitude towards cryptocurrencies, that, that's that's a bit of a distinct issue. And I think that there, what you're seeing is that you know, China worries deeply about that those cryptocurrencies being used as tools for speculation, and and they're, they're very concerned about the formation of, of speculative bubbles and the, the consequences, both economic and social, even when those burst. But you've also got to understand that in China, the social contract between the state and its citizens has dramatically changed in the past 10 to 20 years. Previously, health-to-health growth had really ignored environmental issues. China at one point was the largest center for Bitcoin mining. That's obviously a very energy consumptive activity. China still relies heavily on coal for electricity generation. And so the, the proliferation of Bitcoin miners was having a material impact on the environment. So I think you know the, the issues of investor protection and you know avoiding you know, the economic or sorry the environmental damage involved in cryptocurrency mining uh, were, were major factors in in the China, Chinese government's decision to crack down that's interesting so you, you your your perspective is that the 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 crackdown on, on Bitcoin was more of an environmental perspective I think that's sort of unique you don't feel that there was a you know, I, a fear of, um, I mean, in, in a very centralized society um, like China to have a distributed um, technology and distributed ledger type currency seems like a, a good reason to be against it. But you, you, you feel like it was a bigger, uh, that, that, the, the, that the environmental issues were really what drove? In, environmental and the, the 
poison of speculative bubbles. I think were major drivers. There's there's no doubt that you know there are also concerns about you know, non-state issued currencies, um, you know, proliferating. It's not just China who's sensitive about that. Uh, China happens. China happens to still have a, a semi-closed capital account, and certainly, I think that the People's Bank of China wouldn't want to see cryptocurrencies being a channel for large-scale capital flight. But in that, China's not unique. If you look at other governments around the world and the way they've responded to cryptocurrencies, and particularly Western governments' response to Facebook's proposal to create Libra or DM, and the way that they strangled that to death, that's not something that's unique to China. Well, this has been very interesting, uh, James. To, to thank you for your time. Again, the book uh, is Financial Cold War, A View of Sino-U.S. Relations from the Financial Markets. I assume that that's uh, available in all the usual uh, outlets. It, it's ava- available from the usual app outlets, Amazon.com. And if you want to find out more about it, you can go to my website, which is James A. Fock. Com. That's J-A-M-E-S-A-F-O-K dot com. That's great. Thank you very much, James. It's been uh, really interesting to talk to you and would love to have you back again sometime in the near future. Thank you, Buck. It's been a pleasure. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, a great example of, you know, some differences in perspective. I have to say I was surprised about James's take on, you know, Bitcoin and, you know, China's real motivation underlying their being related to environmental issues, which, you know, I, I've, again, I still have a hard time believing that that's really the main perspective that, that China has for attacking the miners and going after Bitcoin. But, you know, I mean, James, uh, James is a Hong Kong. I think he understands the government well, right? And the war with Ukraine, again, I just, it's hard for me to look at it the way he does from a geopolitical reference point that he does, you know, looking at it as, of course, he didn't say this, but an implication that was almost sort of justified from Russia to invade because of this perceived danger from NATO alliances and stuff like that. Anyway, interesting stuff. Hope you enjoyed it. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.